0: That's investher, H-E-R, con.com, promo code 100 best ever to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: There's two things that get you there. The first is education, and the second is networking. There's a quote that says, you'll be the same person in five years that you are today, except for the books you read and the people that you meet. So going to conferences, local meetups.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day
2: to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm joined by Bronson Hill. Bronson is joining us from Pasadena, California. He's the founder and CEO of Bronson Equity, which helps passive investors receive predictable passive income through real estate and other assets. Primarily, Bronson Equity operates as a capital raiser co-general partner, often with fund of funds investing. The deals they've invested in include over 2,000 multifamily units, ATM machines, car washes, and oil and gas investing, which I'm interested to hear more about. Bronson, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on?
1: Yeah, great. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here today at the Best Ever Show. Um, So my background, I was a medical device sales guy for about 10 years and was making good money, was making over 200K a year and could get it done in less than 30 hours a week. And I just wanted to have more control over my time. I wanted to have something that I could do to scale my wealth. I love traveling. I love being able to create and it just didn't allow me to do it. So I had been doing single family houses and got to four of them and just realized I wasn't scaling. So I had a cousin who'd been doing real estate forever. And I said, Hey, what do you, you know, this is my plan. And he said, that sounds like a lot of work. Why don't you do multifamily? So he taught me about syndications said, read this book, go to this conference, listen to this podcast. I did everything he said. And within a couple of years, I'd raised about 15 million and was getting ready to leave my great corporate job. So I've been gone. I think I quit my job two years ago. And we've raised, I think, $35 million total for different types of deals, both in real estate and outside of real estate. And we've just been able to really help a lot of people to generate passive wealth outside of Wall Street. So that's really my passion and just talking about how we can help people to learn more about financial education
2: and growing their wealth. Did you start by raising capital for multifamily and then start moving into other asset classes? Yeah, that's how I started. I have a
1: book coming out called Fire Yourself. Replace your working income with passive income in three years or less. And basically I call multifamily the gateway drug. It's kind of the thing that gets you started and then you're like, oh, I'm hooked on this. It's great. So I started with multifamily. My story, of how I started, I actually started a meetup in Los Angeles and we had about 60 people at the first meeting. I had a guy come up to me I'd never met before and said, hey, I'd invest in one of your deals. And I was thinking, are you talking to me? Like, I don't have any deals. So he said, yeah, I would invest with you. So we got coffee and I basically showed him a sample deal. It wasn't a real deal. It was just a, what a deal would look like if I had one at the time. And he said, yeah, I'd probably put hundred K into that. And so then I found another guy I met at that same meetup who had a deal, was looking for money. And I just basically connected them. That was my first hundred K. And I think that's the hardest part for anyone who's getting started. is just getting from zero to one, right? Getting to become a general partner on a deal. So that's one way to do it. Another way I love to be able to do it is if you have a little bit of money to invest, you can basically just send out an email to friends and family personally and just say, hey, John, I'm investing in this. Maybe you'd be interested also. So that's really kind of a little hack a lot of people can use to get on the GP side of
2: bringing money to deals also. Bronson, when is it that you started diversifying into other asset classes outside of multifamily?
1: When I look at deals, I try to look at deals beyond whatever the asset is and We buy a lot of stuff in the Southeast, primarily the Sunbelt, Value Add, Multifamily. We have our 2,000 units, mostly in Jacksonville, Florida, and Atlanta, Georgia. I had invested in an ATM machine fund, fourth or fifth largest operator of ATM machines in the country. And I just liked the investment so much. It was just the most consistent cash flowing deal that I had done. So after investing in it for a couple of years, I kind of thought, well, let me see if I can bring this to my investors because I think it provides something. That over the years, historically, multifamily has been a decent cash flow investment. Sometimes it's been up and down. The last year or two, It hasn't been as consistent, especially if you got into deals in the last couple of years. You know, expenses are up, insurance costs are up, labor is up, materials, there's interest costs, all that stuff's going up. So if you can find something that cash flows consistently, if you look at appreciation versus cash flow, to me, cash flow is a much more compelling thing because you can actually can replace your living expenses, right? So my podcast is called The Mailbox Money Show, and it's just basically how do people develop passive streams outside of real estate? So we did ATM machines. We raised $10 million for that the last couple of years, had a lot of investors love that. Then we have found an oil and gas deal. We got involved in that. We found a car wash deal that we love. So just getting in different assets, it's really the same principles, I think, Slocum. It comes down to the market. So what is that particular market? In multifamily, we'd say, okay, what's that sub market in Jacksonville, Florida for that particular type of property? Well, an ATM machine might say, well, what's the ATM market in this particular area? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Are people actually using it? And then who's the operating team? What's their experience? What have they done in that particular thing? Is this a rinse and repeat type of deal or is it something totally different than they've done before? And then also the specific deal. Do you understand as an investor, how you can make money? And also typically there's one to two primary risks of ways you could lose money. And if you don't see it in any deal, if you're, I don't know how I could lose money in this deal. It seems like it's perfect. There's nothing ever wrong. You probably don't understand the deal well enough because there's always a way or one or two primary ways you could lose money. So that's kind of how I analyze deals, but uh, that's again, kind of how we got started doing different things.
2: And when was it that you started into that ATM machine fund and then with other real estate-based operating businesses?
1: I started in multifamily fall of 2018, so almost five years ago. And then it was about three years ago, we started diversifying in other assets And there's been an advantage too, I think the last year and a half, last couple of years, as rates have gone higher, if you have a great business, I study Warren Buffett a lot, he just talks about, you know, a wonderful business is something that just has certain components where it cash flows and it has some competitive advantages. There's a lot of businesses that are still doing really well, even if rates are higher, even if things are struggling in a certain asset. So I look at multifamily being that's one asset or one type of real estate. And there's other things that are businesses or other things outside of that. So having a little more diversity can make you a little more nimble and have different characteristics for your portfolio.
2: Bronson, for the sake of furthering our conversation and for the sake of the listeners, I'd like to make a summary with some assumptions about the trajectory of the deals that you've invested in. and I want you to correct me where I'm wrong and then add to what I'm saying here. It's been an interesting time, especially for cash flow returns the last three years for multifamily deals when you had the massive run-up in property values with compressing cap rates, especially as interest rates were compressing during COVID. And now that you have the most massive spike in interest rates in however many decades the pundits want to say it's been since the last time interest rates have risen this quickly, cash flow has been really difficult in multifamily. Your investment thesis is primarily cash flow-driven because you're looking to replace active income for yourself and for your investors. And so the target, the desire for cash flow has taken you from multifamily into real estate related or real estate focused operating businesses, coin laundry, ATMs. You said car washes, didn't you? Car washes, oil and gas. Car washes. Some people make that transition to coin laundry, even though you guys haven't. I'm interested to hear about the oil and gas, but the funds you're investing in are operating a business much more so than multifamily GPs who hire a property manager and then asset manage them. You talked about the difference in risk. Can you tell us about how you calculate the differences in the risk profile in investing in these businesses as opposed to investing in specifically real estate?
1: Yeah. So I think there is risk in every type of investment that we do. I've had actually now over 1,500 one-on-one phone calls with investors that are interested in cash flow or interested in appreciation or have different investing goals. And I think it really comes down to what someone's goals are. Before we talk about risk, cash flow is really important. I think cash flow is the most important thing. I think if you make a ton of money way down the road, it's less powerful than I'm making money this month, next month, this year. It's more consistent. I think how you really look at that and how you evaluate that in each deal depends on the deal. And it just really depends on, okay, when I'm looking at this deal, do I have a knowledge of, for example, ATMs? Have I ever used an ATM? What do I know about ATMs? What are the things there? Is this similar to any other types of businesses? Well, what could happen in this type of situation? Is there a risk? How do we know it's a real business? How do we know these ATMs are in place? How do we know the people are good people? We usually run background checks. We do different things to try to mitigate as much risk as we can. At the end of the day, you can't mitigate every single risk, but you can mitigate a lot of it. And a lot of times people, they don't ask the hard questions or they don't ask two or three more questions. Or like, hey, I really want this or I need this information or, hey, as I'm making my decision, can I have this bit of information or these amount of financials or something external that really validates this? So I think, again, it's what is the business what will they share with you? Will they share operating documents? Will they share prior performance? Again, there's a deal we're looking at now that is a higher risk deal. I can't really talk about what asset it's in, but it's something in the financial payment space, and there's some record of this being really viable and it working really well with a particular team. They've never done this. So I got to look at this and say, you're looking at the market itself. Okay. There's definitely a market for it. The team though, they've never really done this. So this is going to be a higher risk deal. So the returns have to be substantially better than somebody's with a proven team. So it's just things you take into account. Again, the challenge is when looking at someone's portfolio, I can't tell someone you should allocate this way. You should have 90% of your stuff in multifamily or 50% of your stuff in this type of asset. Every person has to kind of evaluate it for themselves. I think if somebody's high net worth, there is a place for 5 to 10% of my net worth in things that are higher risk, that they could go 10x or 100x. And there are investments out there that do that, but those typically have higher risk. So again, it just depends on somebody's risk profile. If somebody's 80 years old and they're having health issues, probably investing in a 10-year deal that could be a 10 or 100x may not be because they might not be around for it. So I think just really evaluating someone's risk profile is really important, but I think it's deal specific. You've got to really try to eyes wide open. What are, all the things that could go wrong? I even ask operators, what's your biggest concern? What's the biggest risk that you see here? And talk to other investors about it. Just kind of get as much information as you can, because a lot of times it's risks that were right there, or it's a risk that you just didn't even think about. So I think it's really important to let it be a group approach as you analyze a deal.
2: In those other asset classes, Cash flow returns are projected to be greater. That's why you're doing them in the first place. Tell us a little bit more about the business plan. Is there a targeted hold period with a disposition afterwards and a targeted average annual return or internal rate of return, or is it more of a long term hold play?
1: That's a great question. I think it really depends what type of asset we're talking about. I'll give ATMs for an example because it functions differently. And I talk about this in my book. It functions differently. Multifamily typically you get paid about 50, 60 percent of the returns, at least from the projections, at the sale or the refinance. You get paid later, right? So you're getting cash flow and you get paid at the end. With our ATM fund or the funds that we do, I'm not sharing any specific deal, but typically you're paid out as you go along. And on a projection level, you might have half your money back in two, two and a half years, and then in a certain period you're all paid back. So we get maybe four years, all you're all paid back, and then by the seventh year, that's when the investment ends. So you're getting cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, and then it just stops at the end. We talked about there's different reasons people invest. Some people do it for cash flow, some people do it for reducing taxes. So when you get depreciation in multifamily, it's great because it allows you to push other investment tax burden in the future or down the road, unless you're a real estate professional, which you can use it sooner. And then the oil and gas deals, those are nice because not only they have decent returns, they also offer the potential for active income reduction. So somebody can become a general partner with energy. There's some unique, and again, I'm I'm not a tax advisor giving me tax advice, but there are energy investments such as oil and gas, which 100K invested allows for something like an $80,000 reduction against ordinary income which is really magical because then people that are not real estate professionals potentially can start using the write-off. So I think it comes down to what is the goal for someone when they're investing? Is this retirement money? Is this money that's trying to get cash flow to cover expenses? Is this something somebody's just looking for a high return? And I think that depends on the investor's profile of where they're headed and where they want to head.
0: We'll get back to the show with the first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you raising capital for commercial real estate ventures? To make sure you comply with security laws and structure deals correctly, talk to syndicationattorneys.com, your premier legal resource real estate syndicators and fund managers. Syndicationattorneys.com dedicates its practice to helping real estate syndicators and fund managers legally raise capital from private investors. Their experienced team has helped create over $2.75 billion in security offerings, making them industry leaders in the capital raising space. To get a free copy of their book, How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally, go to syndicationattorneys.com or text the word FAIRLESS to eight four four seven nine six three four two eight. 796 3428 That's FAIRLESS, F-A-I-R-L-E-S-S, to eight four four seven nine six three four two eight. Launch and grow your business with syndicationattorneys.com today. This offer is not valid to Florida residents. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment Never lost an LP's investment and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors, targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a 3 to 5 year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot the BAM com.
2: Bronson, back to the ATMs and the car washes. Oil and gas, I get it, higher cash flow for a period of time and then the resource depletes and the return ends. Why is it that with ATMs and car washes, there's a steady cash flow that just ends after a period of time? It's not like the ATMs or the car washes went away.
1: So ATMs are different than car washes. Car washes, that's a different strategy. So ATMs, typically the group we worked with it'll be a seven-year contract. So imagine you're an owner of a convenience store. Maybe you do own a convenience store at Slocum. But let's say you've got a convenience store or a hotel or some area that needs an ATM. So we'll go in and we'll say, you've had this ATM with us. You're happy with it. They usually get a split. So you would be getting 30% of all the fees or something like that. And we'd say, we'd love to get you a new ATM. How does that sound, Slocum? You say, oh, it sounds good. Okay, great. Well, we just need to sign a new contract so we can put that new ATM in there. And so we get them a nice new ATM, but it basically is dependent on them signing a new seven-year contract. So all of these are under contract. And when they're under that seven-year contract, they're not at risk of somebody coming in and scooping that account and saying, I've got this account now. So it secures the cash stream as well. so that's kind of the model. So every seven years, they basically replace them. There's a small scrap value at the end where they're basically stripped of anything that has data on there is destroyed just in case any financial, we don't even, you know, send, send them off somewhere and financial information is getting out there. So we destroy them. We'll have some scrap value that goes out of there. The car washes, though, is an interesting idea. It's called the private equity roll up strategy. So what this means, this takes place in private equity. It could be a group has five car washes or five gas stations or five dental practices and they want to sell them. Well, if you want to sell five car washes, you typically can sell them for eight to 10 times earnings or to eight to 10 times EBITDA, which is before depreciation tax insurance, all this stuff. If you have 50 of them, 50 car washes, you can typically sell them for 20 to 30 times earnings. So there's value being put together just simply by packaging them up and putting similar ones together of the same kind. Now why is that the case? It's because the buyer, private equity, which has tens of billions of dollars, they don't want to buy one car wash, five car wash. They want to spend 100 million, 500 million dollars buying 100 of these, right? So they will spend a much higher multiple. So when there's a sale for a car wash, for example, in this deal, then there are some deals where it allows the investor to share in that upside when there's a sale. So that one, there is an asset, there's a sale at the end. The ATMs, it's more like it's seven years, cash stream, and then it's done. And then there's a new investor that takes over the next seven years.
2: Bronson, outside of investor relations, outside of getting capital raised for these investments, what have your biggest struggles been in this venture?
1: I think the biggest challenge for a lot of investors in general is just if something is new and different, it's even it exists in multifamily. What I call an investor earlier today. Is like, I haven't really heard of syndication. What's syndication, right? So it's the same stuff we deal with in multifamily. It's just the thing we've never heard of. That's usually the thing that it's not always, but it could be something that could really help us. So a lot of times I always say our biggest competition is not other syndicators or other opportunities out there. It's Wall Street. We're educated by these Wall Street groups. I call myself a recovering investment advisor. I was an investment advisor for a few years. And the reason why everybody thinks these are traditional investments, such as stocks and bonds, is because Wall Street spends billions and billions and billions of dollars a year educating people about these traditional investments, right? accounts.
2: I'm talking primarily about after the capital has been raised. What are the struggles that you face, both in multifamily and outside of multifamily, in the deals that you've invested in?
1: Gotcha. Okay. So what are the challenges within the deals that we've done? I would say finding the right partners. You don't really know somebody until you do a deal with them. And some partners we've worked with both on the multifamily side, as well as on other assets, we've said, Hey, these have been great. We'll do more deals. Others we've said, I think we're good here. I used to think everybody had the same values when it came to partnership, when it came to working with other operating partners. And I realized not everybody does. Not everybody has the same values. So I think it comes down to vetting partners, vetting deals, and just really figuring out who is reputable. I think it's the same challenge that passive investors have, but I think it's just really finding who you're going to work with. Are they actually going to be able to perform the way that the plan set out that they were going to perform?
2: It sounds like you're saying that that hasn't gone right, that you've gone into some partnerships not really knowing who these operators were because you hadn't done a deal together. And then you did a deal together and you came across some hurdles.
1: Yeah, I think in general, our core values really, it comes to being conservative on underwriting, being very transparent in communication and looking for long-term partnership with investors. I will say that not everybody who operates has those same values. Not everybody wants to communicate well. Sometimes the communication is poor. Sometimes it's delayed. Sometimes there's issues with this should have been shared right away and it wasn't shared right away.
2: Can you give some examples of how that's affected your investments thus far?
1: Yeah. Let's say I can sit here as a passive. I think specific deals that I'm in, we have one deal. It's kind of ongoing, so I don't want to give too much detail, but whenever you have a performance issue, whenever you have an issue with this is not going the way that we signed up for, there are internal factors, meaning that like, there's stuff that we could have done as a team differently. And then you have external factors, right? Where there's the market, there's the interest rates, there's other things. And some of those you could say are also internal as well, because as an operator, you should have predicted those. But I think whenever you see, okay, we're ahead of schedule on renovations for a value-add multifamily, but we're not getting those leased up correctly, right? So we're at 80% occupancy or something. That's an issue, right? Because that's going to eat in your cash flow. What's going on? We're doing well in construction and renovations for a value-add deal, but we're not doing well on leasing up those units. So specifically, I think that's an area of underperformance. And sometimes we actually had this happen recently where we had a property manager that was great we worked for them for several years, and then they just suddenly started being really bad. They just were not good. Their occupancies were dropping. Their responsiveness was poor. The collections, there's just different issues we had with them. We had to switch. And we found sometimes with property managers that will exist as well, where they'll be good for a while, and then they'll expand too quickly or they'll have staffing issues or whatever. And all of a sudden, we've got to switch because they're not managing things the way we need to manage them or we'd like to manage them.
2: Last question before we transition the episode, Bronson, specific to oil and gas, outside of peripheral tax advantages that have nothing to do with the actual performance of the deal or of the asset, what is it that attracted you and your investors to that space?
1: You mentioned the tax is one thing. If you don't count the taxes, I think it's basically the potential to have higher upside. There are some challenges in working with the oil and gas space. So you have to find an operator that's really reliable, that has a great history of operating. Even then, you may still have issues that come up. I think the goal really in any investment, typically it's either cash flow or appreciation, or if you're looking at tax benefits. So I think those are the things that drew us to it when you have a higher upside. And then also, I think another thing is having a non-correlated asset that's less correlated to real estate. If real estate is struggling, if you have in it for a while, it was very, very overweighted in my personal net worth and portfolio to multi. I probably still am a bit, but having other assets that can perform well, typically oil and gas have less leverage or no leverage versus levered investments that you're dependent on the interest rate, right? The ATM is similar to that. Right? The ATM has no leverage in it at all. So having different aspects, having something non-correlated. and on one hand, diversity, I think can be good because it gives you the ability to build things in different streams. So if one struggles, obviously you have help. There can be over diversification. I know people that have over 50 or over 75 passive deals. I think it's too many. I think it's really hard to track, but I think really we're looking for wonderful businesses that we can buy or be a part of, invest in an investment at a, at a fair price, and we see a high upside. So Some of the stuff we're looking at in the oil and gas space now, it really blows anything out of the water that I'm seeing in multifamily right now, right? So I think if you're open and there'll be times where multifamily will be more attractive, right? So I think it just depends on what season you're in and where you're at and just how you're open to various opportunities and different assets.
2: A very intriguing prospect for sure. Bronson, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. Let's do it. What is the best ever book that you recently read?
1: So I reread a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. I was able to have lunch with him recently at the Limitless Conference and just an amazing book.
2: What is your best ever way to give back?
1: My big why, really, for doing all of this is to try to end modern-day human slavery in the world. So there are 20 to 40 million human slaves today. So I volunteer with a group called the Dress Amber Organization that helps fight human trafficking
2: in the world. Thus far, Bronson, in the deals that you have funded... What is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it?
1: I would say the biggest mistake would be just really not having enough conversations with potential partners, not doing enough work on the front end, just to make sure that we actually are aligned from our values on a couple deals we've done where it's like, you know, I think I'd rather have a a do over on that one or or not done that one. It's been from that, right? It's been from just a values type of conversation that probably could have been avoided. So we try to spend a lot more time on the front end now, just really getting to know a group, really, you know, their track record, who they are, and just really spend time with them.
2: On that note, what is your best ever advice?
1: My best ever advice is if you want to grow your net worth, all of us come to real estate, typically for this reason, to grow wealth, to grow cash flow, to grow net worth. There's two things to get you there. The first is education and the second is networking. There's a quote that says you'll be the same person in five years that you are today, except for the books you read and the people that you meet. So going to conferences, local meetups, I run a meetup in Southern California and in Los Angeles. Just being around those types of places, reading books, podcasts, shows like this, will really help you grow as an investor for sure.
2: Last question, where can people get in touch with you? best way to
1: reach out my website, bronsonequity.com. I've got a free ebook, how to use inflation to your advantage. So some unconventional ways to use inflation in real estate, outside of real estate to your advantage. I also have a book coming out in the next couple months called fire yourself about getting out of a job or getting out of a workplace to replace your income with passive income. So, but this has been great. So welcome. I appreciate having me.
2: Those links are in the show notes. Thank you, Bronson. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day.
1: Thanks, Logan.
0: Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content?